In your Bibles tonight, Revelation chapter number 2, we're working through chapter number 2 and 3, which is the section of the book of Revelation that would fall under the category of the things which are. The first chapter, the things which thou hast seen, we have the vision of John from God, of the revelation, the revealing of Jesus, and uh then we come to the second and third chapters, which falls under the category of things which are. And I'm confident that chapters 2 and 3, dealing with the seven churches of Asia, are scenarios that are likened unto the moment which we live. And these were seven literal churches that had positives and negatives and things to be dealt with and worked on. And, and I think that in each of the churches, there are warnings uh, and uh, blessings that we need to pay attention to as a church that is functioning and trying to please the Lord in the year 2023. And we saw the first of these churches, the church at Ephesus. Uh, the burden that the Lord had for the church at Ephesus was that they had lost their first love. They would lost their first love. The second church uh, was the church at Smyrna. And uh, nothing negative said about the church at Smyrna. They were going through deep persecution and struggling and uh, they were uh, it was a difficult season for the church at Smyrna and God said something fascinating about the church at Smyrna he said thou art rich they hadn't lost their faith they hadn't lost their uh, desire to serve the Lord they hadn't lost their trust in God and he said thou art rich and we come now tonight to the church at Pergamos the church at Pergamos we'll begin our reading in verse number 12 the church at Pergamos and the church of Pergamos was the faltering church. They were the faltering church. And the way the church of Pergamos looks, there was a remnant of faithful, saved people in the church at Pergamos. But among the church, the church was being overran by worldliness and sin, a desire for human power and pride. And God is going to encourage and he wants to challenge the church at Pergamos, the saved remnant, to stand up against, and against sin, against the devil, for the truth, and turn the tide. And the Pergamos was the faltering church. And we'll look together here tonight in chapter 2, verse number 12 of the book of Revelation. The Bible says in Revelation 2 and verse 12, And to the angel, the pastor, the preacher, of the church in Pergamos, write these things, saith he, which hath the sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. And thou holdest fast my name and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee. Because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly. And will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that hath an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna. And will give him a white stone. And in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth 
it. The church at Pergamos. Let's pray, Lord. We pray you'd bless the preach of your word. Help us to understand, but not only to understand, but to apply the truths of this passage of Scripture. Lord, I pray you'd search our hearts and make us willing to humble ourselves and get right with thee even tonight. Bless us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Pergamos was the faltering church. Pergamos was the kind of church where liberalism and wickedness and sinfulness had become prominent among the rank and file of the church. There were large groups of people who were welcoming, excusing, and partaking in all manner of sin that God had declared unrighteous and holy. There were groups of people in the church who were determined to use the structure and the power of a mass gathering of Christian people to their advantage in society. And they were trying their best to establish a priestly order They were looking for prominence among men and people full of pride. And the Lord says, we've got to do something about the church at Pergamos because if something doesn't happen, I'm going to come in and I'm going to judge with my sword, the sword of my mouth, the church at Pergamos. A great judgment was coming. And a warning comes to the church at Pergamos and some things we want to see. Let's consider number one. God and the faithful Christians, if you look with me in verses 12 and verse 13, the Bible says to the angel of the church in Pergamos, write these things, saith he, which hath the sharp sword with two edges. Now, the first thing we see is we meet God again, and God introduces himself and identifies himself in a specific way, and he gives us a sign, the sign of the sword. The sword is a sign of judgment. In the end of this passage of Scripture, the Bible says in verse number 16, that uh, repent or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. I think this is quite fascinating that you see a division in the church in verse number 16. Repent or else I will come unto thee. He's speaking to through the the preacher. He's speaking through it to the saved people in the church. He says, repent or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He says, judgment's going to fall. And the people who are not putting their trust in Christ, who are not being obedient to me, they're going to fall under my judgment. And I want you to understand something about God. God is love. It's awesome. But God is also righteous. And those two things work together. God loves you too much to let you continue in sin. And I want you to understand something. If you are living in sin, if you're going in a direction away from God, if you are denying God and his word, you beware because God will judge you in love. He loves you too much. If you're his child to let you get by with sin. And I'll just let you know something. The judging hand of God and the ability of God to reckon the account is a scary matter. God says... Something doesn't happen. I'm the God with the tongue that's like a sharp two-edged sword and judgment will come. Verse 13. I mentioned this was God and the faithful Christians. In verse 13, God says this to the faithful remnant of Christians among the church in Pergamos. He says, I know thy works. 
The Lord knows our works. Now, this is a fascinating thought. One, this is very positive in light of the church at Pergamos. Their works, the people he's talking about, he's going to praise them. He says, thank you for being faithful servants of me. And I'm thankful to know that God knows your works. You know what? You don't have to do your works so everybody on the planet can see them. As a matter of fact, the Bible says if you do, do things to be seen of men, you have your reward. And I want you to know God knows your works. Aren't you glad? But I also want to be aware of the fact that God knows your works. If you're living in rebellion to God, he knows. You're not hiding something from God. I know thy works and where thou dwellest. He knows where you live. He knows what's going on in your home. I know thy works, where thou dwellest. Now, in light of the church at Pergamos, he's talking to the Christian people here. He says, I know your works. I know that you're serving me. You're living for me. I know where you dwell. I know the difficulty of the place in which you live. The next phrase gives us more insight into that. Even where Satan's seat is. Even where Satan's seat is. The encouraging thing about Satan having a seat is that we have to remember something about Satan. He is not like God. He is not omnipresent. Aren't you glad? Satan can't be everywhere all the time. Sometimes when you blame the devil for doing something, it's your own wicked flesh that caused that mess. But he's not omnipresent, but he is the prince of the power there, and we should never minimize his abilities. But I know Satan, even where Satan's seat is, the Lord is acknowledging that Satan has a stronghold in the church at Pergamos. He's working, he's moving, he's doing a great work. He says, I know where Satan's seat is. He says, I want to praise you for this. Thou holdest fast, verse 13, thou holdest fast my name. Thou holdest fast my name. He was praising the church at Pergamos because even though there were groups of people and there was great difficulty in the church and Satan was stirring and Satan was moving. He says, thank you for holding fast my name. May we always be faithful to preach the name of Jesus. You see, it's not Jesus that does good deeds. It's Jesus who is the Savior who died on the cross for the sins of the world to give us everlasting life. That's the name of Jesus that we preach. And may we constantly and consistently preach the name of Jesus. He says, I praise you, church, for holding fast my name. He's talking to the faithful Christians. He says, I praise you that thou holdest fast my name and hast not denied my faith. Oh, this is good. There were a group of people in this church that were sticking by the stuff. Even in those days where Antipas was my faithful martyr. He says, you were stood fast. You kept the faith. Even in the most difficult of moments when Antipas was martyred for the cause of Christ. I heard this about Antipas. I don't know all the details about this. But I heard Antipas was martyred for being an outstanding, an outspoken Christian. He was cooked inside of a, like a calf-like altar. Antipas. He says, you guys stood faithful even in the days of Antipas, my faithful martyr, who was slain among you, where Satan dwelled. He says, you guys are sticking by the stuff in a tough spot. I've been thinking about this passage of scripture and I've been thinking about churches and churches in our area and churches around the world. And, and I want you to understand and remember something. Before you start throwing stones at churches that don't look exactly like us, I want to remember that in this church, the church at Pergamos, there were a group of people who were genuinely born again 
that were saved. They were still remaining and holding to the name of Jesus. They were still striving to live and do the right thing. And among their people that were attending their church, there was a group of folks who were completely wicked, carnal, sinful, lost. But for some reason in this moment in the history of the church at Pergamos, God had kept a remnant of saved people among that group of people. And as I study the church at Pergamos, I'm reminded of something. That we need to be praying for folks that God saved folks that God has kept among church in churches that are struggling and churches that have, are moving toward the world. We need to be praying for folks that God would give courage and raise up in even the most liberal and stinky liberal churches in America. God would raise up folks who would turn the tide and win the loss that are in churches that are meeting every Sunday. I'm praying for that. I'm praying for that. I'm not going to join up with wicked, liberal, sinful churches, but I'm praying that God will raise up among churches that are leaving God's word, that are leaving the message of salvation by grace through faith in Christ. I'm praying among churches that don't look like us, smell like us, act like us. I'm praying that God will raise up, save people, and God will move in the hearts of preachers that are genuinely God-called safe preachers to go to churches that there's a multitude of lost people among them, that they'll preach the gospel and turn the tide that God will save. And the Lord is sending a message to the church at Persia. He says, now look, this church is a royal mess, but there's a few of you that are genuinely saved. There's a few of you that have been faithful even through difficult times of persecution. There's a few of you that still believe in the message of the gospel and the word of God. And for those of you that are there, stand up, stand up, stand up. And I'm praying. It's a fascinating thought. But it's a fact there are churches that meet on Sundays all over this country that it is possible that the right man could stand behind a pulpit where false doctrine has been preached and preached the truth of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and people could hear the gospel and be saved. Hey, I'm praying. I'm praying for a great revival among liberal, wicked churches. God's saying, hey, Pergamos, y'all got a mess. But hey, save people left at Pergamos, including the preacher in this case. Repent, turn, preach. God can do something great. They were faithful Christians in the church at Pergamos. They were faithful. Satan was there, but they were faithful. The seed of Satan was there, but they were faithful. Wickedness was rampant. They were faithful. God's calling the faithful Christians to take a stand and do the right thing. For us, I believe we're a church that preaches the word of God the best we know how. That believes the fundamentals of faith. That's not going to put up with sinfulness and worldliness and wickedness. But may we be reminded that we must constantly stand for the truth. Live for the glory of God and please the Lord with the way we do church. The faithful Christians, number two. The false creeds. The false creeds. Look at what the Bible says in verse 14. This is the message you didn't want to hear if you remember the church at Pergamos. He says, But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, 
to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. Now, the Lord's going to give us some details into the problems that's going on in the church at Pergamos. The first thing was that the church at Pergamos had people among them who were holding the doctrine of Balaam. I'd encourage you to take time on your own to read the in the Bible, Numbers chapters 22, 23, 24, and 25. You can read the story of Balaam and Balak. Balaam and Balak. Balak was the king of the nation of Moab. We know Moab is familiar because Ruth came from Moab. Moab, the Moabites, they were pagans. They were uh, Gentile pagans. And the Moabites, the 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 king of Moab, Balak, he was very worried when he looked and saw the nation of Israel and the power of the nation of Israel, and he felt confident that if uh, that the nation of Israel could harm and overtake the land of Moab. And so Balak, in fear, calls on a man named Balaam. Balaam, to my understanding, was a Gentile prophet. He was a man that knew the word of God, that had a relationship with Jehovah God. And he was a man that was known to have connections with the Lord himself. And so Balak, the king, goes to Balaam, the prophet, and he says, Balaam, here's what I want you to do. I'll give you lots and lots of money and prominence and power and prestige if you'll rise up and curse the nation of Israel. Balaam said, I can't say anything that God doesn't say. I'll have to just say what God says. Let me, let me ask God what he wants me to do. And he calls out to God and God tells him, you're not going to curse my people. They're blessed people. They're blessed people. They're blessed people. They're blessed people. Three times this happens. One time, God gives Balaam permission to go with Balak somewhere. And it's that, that story in the Bible where Balaam is riding his donkey and the donkey sees the angel of the Lord blocking the path. And the donkey throws Balaam into a grapevine. And the donkey throws Balaam into, on the ground, if I'm not mistaken. And it's a fascinating story. And Balaam starts, starts beating his donkey. And God causes the donkey to speak. And the donkey talks to Balaam and says, What are you doing beating on me? I've been with you since I was just little. And uh, then finally Balaam sees God Balaam won't curse the nation of Israel. But Balaam does something for Balak that's very devastating. Balaam encourages Balak to invite, instead of cursing the nation of Israel, he encourages Balaam to invite the nation of Israel to their feasts, to their parties, to their celebrations. He encourages Balaam, he encourages Balak to have the church, the, the Jews, God's people, participate in the drinking, in the parting, in the wickedness, in the sinfulness, in the fornication, sexual perversion. He says, if you'll do that, then they'll curse themselves. That is the doctrine of Balaam. The doctrine of Balaam is when a church gets to the place where they have become so mind numb 
And so disconnected with the reality of who God is and how God works, they forget that God is a God with a sharp sword who judges sin, who hates sin, who loves righteousness. Not because he wants to put you in a box and punish you. He loves righteousness because he wants to set you free. He wants to bless your family. He wants to bless your home. He wants to give you a fruit from productive life and a long eternity in his presence. But the doctrine of Balaam is the, is the doctrine, is the idea that says God loves me so much and he wants me to enjoy life and he wants me to enjoy all the sins and all the sinful pleasures of life and, and God really isn't just a cosmic killjoy and he's not, but God hates sin because sin hurts his people. And I want you to understand something. If you choose to sin against God, you choose to hurt yourself. The doctrine of Balaam was when Balak and Balaam encouraged God's people to drop their standard of righteousness and holiness and do what they wanted to do instead of doing what was right and do what their flesh wanted instead of do what was right. And the product, the byproduct was that almost immediately the nation of Israel began to fall. In chapter 25 of the book of Numbers, you can watch it. The nation of Israel begins to fall to their enemies. And Balak, the king of Moab, has nothing to worry about when God's people are infiltrated with sin. And the church at Pergamos, they had got to the place where they just excused all their sinful behaviors. They got to the place where they excused and they said, well, my circumstance is different. I can commit fornication. My circumstances, and God understands. God understands that sin is going to hurt you. It's going to hurt your family. It's going to hurt your future. It's going to hurt everything. He does understand and therefore he says, thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not commit fornication. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not. Because he's protecting you. Because he loves you. And God said the church at Pergamos have done a terrible thing. They've welcomed the doctrine of Balaam. Here's what it says in verse 14. They, because thou hast there then that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. That was the concern. That was the, he said, look, church of Pergamos, my people, my children don't live like animals. church at Pergamos, he said, the doctrine of Balaam is a concern. I've got this against you. Also, verse number 15, so hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Let's talk about the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. This is the second time we've seen the doctrine of the Nicolaitans in our study. There was in the church at Ephesus who'd lost their first love. The Bible says that, and he praised the church at Ephesus he says I praise you because you hate the Nic you you do you hate the doctrine of the Nicolaitans and I hate them too something along those lines you can find it for yourself but the the church at Ephesus despised the doctrine of the Nicolaitans but the church at Pergamos they began to welcome the doctrine of the Nicolaitans now what in the world is the doctrine of the Nicolaitans that God hates the Nicolaitans were a party in the church 
that was trying to start a priestly order. So you can break the word up. Nico and Laos is to conquer the people. So they had this idea that they were going to conquer the people. And the people in the church at Ephesus had come to a place where they really wanted a power structure that tended to an upper class and a lower class. A, a, a ruling class and a peasant class. A priestly order and a layman class. A, a situation where you had clergy and laity. Power and peasantry. And God didn't like that. God had called pastors, shepherds to lead his people. I'll just tell you something. By the worldly standard, a shepherd was somebody that didn't carry a lot of clout but had a lot of care. A shepherd was a person that had a lot of wisdom and understanding. A shepherd was somebody that had a lot of love and care and compassion. A shepherd was somebody that led and protected and fed the sheep, the flock of God. But a shepherd was not somebody that was stuffy and proud and powerful and put under his thumb the commoner. But the Nicolaitans... They were trying to develop an order, a holy order of men to put the people in bondage. And I want you to know something. Religion and religious men, religion in the sense of its manly structure, religious men in the sense of the power-hungry folks who want some type of title and sense of power, and authority over someone else. Religion and religious men in that sense of the name, God referred to in the book of Revelation as the Nicolaitans. They wanted to conquer the people. They didn't want the hearts of the people to turn to God. They wanted the hearts of the people to bow to their power. And they came up with titles and an order and a structure. And God hated it. We see these names and words, and I don't want to get too picky, but I have a fear in my heart about a man's desire to be lauded by some title. Lots of folks I often ask me, what do you want me to call you? And I always say, well, Cody's fine. What do you want? I feel weird. Not, what do you want me to call you? I said, Cody is good with me. What do you want me to call you? Pastor, well, that's fine, whatever you want to call me. And normally I'll joke and say something like, well, I prefer illustrious potentate, but whatever is fine with me. <laughs> the truth is, there is a role in the Bible of a pastor leading a church. But the moment that a pastor or someone in the church takes on a leadership role with the idea that somehow, finally, I've got power over the people of God. That's something that God doesn't love. God's called his man to lead his church. And the Nicolaitans, they were determined to build a hierarchy, a clergy, a clerical prominence that deemed lots of people small. Names like Bishop. And I'm not just going to pick on Catholics, I promise, but bishops and archbishops and cardinals and popes and apostles. And Now you look, you don't have to look far, but there's lots of people in this moment in which we live, preachers who couldn't tell you the books of the Bible, 
preachers who've not read the Scriptures, preachers who are unlearned and ignorant according to God's Word, preachers who want to be called bishop. If someone wants you to call them bishop, I just want you to beware. If someone wants you to call them apostle, I want you to be double aware. If someone insists that their, ta- their title be lauded, you beware. Should God's people respect the pastor and God's man? Absolutely. But we should all respect one another. And we're all to exalt one another greater than ourselves. That's the spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Nicolaitans, what were they doing? The Nicolaitans were trying to build up this priestly order. They were trying to have rulers and peasants. And that's not how God works. And God says, I hate the Nicolaitans. Aren't you glad God hates the Nicolaitans? I am. But the church at Pergamos, you know what they're battling with? The doctrine of Balaam. They were letting all kinds of sinfulness into their church. And when you let wickedness and sinfulness, and you quit preaching God's word about sin and righteousness and holiness and repentance, when you stop that, you welcome the doctrine of Balaam that lets any type of wicked sinfulness known to man right in the middle of your church and even behind your pulpit. The doctrine of Balaam, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. God says, I have problems with that. I have something against you. He says, and here's what you need to do, verse number 16. He says, repent. What's that mean? He's calling on the saved people in that church. Hey, look, we're just not going to put up with that. He's calling on the preacher to say, we're not going to put up with that anymore. I really think that God was speaking to the preacher, the church at Pergamos, saying, look, you're going to have to repent about how mealy-mouthed, wishy-washy you've been about the truth, and you're going to have to stand up for what's right. You need to repent or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them With the sword of my mouth. Finally, the faith, the fruitful Christians. God says this in verse number 17. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh. He says, look, you repent, you turn to me. You deal with the sin. You fight the good fight. He says, to him that overcometh, he says, I will give to eat. Of the hidden manna. This thought of hidden manna, I don't know everything I understand about the hidden manna. Have you ever been in a tough situation? You thought, man, I don't know how I'm going to get through this. But when you got to the tough situation, somehow God gave you just something like hidden sweetness, hidden manna, a moment of peace in your heart. Folks, I want you to know, if you'll decide to do the hard things that are right, God says, I'm going to help you. I'm going to give you some hidden manna. I'm going to feed you. I'm going to bless you along the way. I'm not telling you that standing up against sin is easy. I'm not telling you that fighting for what's right is easy. As a matter of fact, I'm going to tell you the opposite. It's hard, hard, hard. But I'm going to tell you the end, the outcome is glorious. And God's promised as you fight the good fight of faith and do the right thing and stand up for truth, God has promised you that he's going to give you hidden manna along the way. When you're getting ready to deal with something tough, you just ask God to give you a sweet taste in your mouth for his goodness, and he will. Fight for the glory of God and what's right. Please, please don't quit. Fight 
Fight in love. Fight for God's sake. He's going to give you hidden manna. What else? And we'll give him a white stone. And in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. The white stone. There's a couple ideas about the white stone. Both of them have about the same meaning. The white stone was something that was used to mark on calendars days of festivity. A day that was blessed, a day that was sweet, a day that was right. A white stone. Also, a white stone was used in law to declare a person not guilty. An acquittal was a white stone. Have you ever heard about being blackballed? The blackball was the stone of guilt. The white stone was the stone of acquittal. I want to think about the making, the marking of days on a calendar. Because I'm confident of this is how God works. You look at the fight that's ahead and you think, why oh, this is so difficult. I mean, we live in a day where the doctrine of Balaam is rampant all around us. Excused wickedness. And God calls on his church to fight for the glory of God. How am I going to make it, Lord? He says, listen, I'm going to send you hidden manna. And I'm going to give you white stones. What's that mean? He says, I'm going to help you to be able to look back on yesterday and say, thank you, Jesus. It was a white stone day. It was sweet. It was good. You gave me the victory. I'm thinking about tomorrow. I don't know how we're going to do it. But you make it through tomorrow and you look back and you look, you're able to, with honesty and sincerity, drop a white stone on that day that you've been through because God, once again, has proved himself faithful. And the next, <laughs> a white stone. Three or four times today I tasted in my mouth the hidden manna of God's blessing. And God has caused me to have a day that would be represented by a white stone. A white stone fell today and a white stone fell tomorrow. And I know what it's like to dread days that are coming down the pike and dread burdens and confrontations. I know what that's like. But I also know and I can testify to you to the faithfulness of God that God can turn the most bitter of things into the sweetest of sweet because his grace is all powerful and sufficient and right and holy. And God calls the church at Pergamos. He says, repent. Repent. You've been, you've been doing the wrong thing. You've been getting the wrong counsel. You've been going down the wrong path. Stop that mess. That's the Greek definition of repent. Stop that mess. Stop that mess. Repent. And you trust God for hidden man and white stones. And a name written in heaven. Oh, it's so glorious. God's faithful. The faltering church, the church at Pergamos, he cries out to all Christians, save people. He says, just keep fighting the good fight of faith. Don't let the world, the devil and the flesh, false doctrine, sinfulness, pride of men, don't let it stop the work that God wants to do. In your heart, your home, and your church. That's God's message to the church at Pergamos, the faltering church. And the Lord convict us of our sin. Encourage us and boldness to do what's right. 
Turn to the Lord. His message was repent. Perhaps we should. Perhaps that's what you need. Repent. Turn to the Lord tonight, we pray.